Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Our traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. And we're also joined tonight by Chris Verone, head of technical and macro research at Strategus. Tonight on Fast, President Trump's former national economic advisor, Gary Cohn, joins us exclusively to talk Trump, trade, taxes, and his big new bet on blockchain. Plus, SNAP CEO Evan Spiegel taking a jab at the competition in a sit-down only on CNBC. But who will come out on top in the social media wars? The traders give us their picks. And shares of teen retailers totally off-fleet today. Abercrombie, American Eagle, and Urban Outfitters all plunging 3% or more. So is it time to drop these names or can they make a comeback? We're going shopping for opportunity. But first... All's quiet on the Western Front as stocks hit record highs yet again. But it's a different story over in China where doubts are growing that a trade deal will get done anytime soon. CNBC's Eunice Yun first broke this story, joins us live from Beijing with the very latest. Hi, Eunice. Hi, Melissa. Well, it does appear as though there's growing pessimism within the government here that a deal can be reached at least by this year. A government source familiar with the trade talks told me that people here were troubled when President Trump about a week ago had suggested that there was no agreement on phasing out tariffs. That's a very important point to Beijing. Uh, He said that the Chinese side felt they had an agreement in principle. Now, there continues to be disagreement over some of the basic points in the deal. For example, the U.S. has been uh, pushing the Chinese to have specific targets for agricultural purchases. He said that the Chinese have been resisting, at least in part, because they're getting pushback from other trading partners and they don't want to be seen as alienating them. Uh, Also, uh, he said that uh, there's uh, been more of a debate now as to the political situation in the U.S. and President Trump's political standing. Uh, Currently, it's unclear uh, because of his possible impeachment as well as an election Uh, just a year away. So uh, he said that now the strategy is that the Chinese want to continue to negotiate. They're watching and waiting to see what happens. But a lot of the focus now is on supporting and prioritizing the domestic economy. And in fact, today, we had some movement on that with the central bank. The central bank had uh, surprised the market by cutting its short-term funding rate for the first time in four years. And analysts expect that it's going to continue to cut and likely cut its new benchmark rate on Wednesday. This is the LPR. Uh, Separate to that, the U.S. uh, announced that it's going to renew its uh, licenses for companies doing business with Huawei, the embattled uh, Chinese tech giant. Um, Those uh, 90-day Um, um, licenses are going to be granted. And this is only days before the Federal Communications Commission is expected to uh, designate on Friday uh, whether or not it's going to call uh, Huawei and ZTE national security risks. Melissa? You know, Eunice, it's funny because prior to your reporting early this morning on the PBOC move, uh, cutting the reverse repo rate was seen as China's willingness to do a deal because they because they had to do something about their economy, and now it's seeing, being seen as the reverse. It sounds as if the Chinese believe they have the upper hand at this point with what's going on politically in the United States. 
Yeah, I think that as more time passes, there is a feeling that time is on China's side, that from a political standpoint, President Trump is in a more precarious situation than President Xi Jinping, even though um, you could argue that President Xi Jinping does have a lot of pressure himself uh, domestically as well as uh, from Hong Kong. Um, it doesn't look as though there are enough um, factions who have any power to really unseat uh, President Tr uh, Xi in any way. Uh, President Trump, though, in a much different political situation, and that's actually a really important um, part of the calculation that um, even though China does see that its economy is slowing down, even though the manufacturing sector is suffering, um, it's still, as we've seen now for over a year, willing to take on that type of uh, pressure for the manufacturing sector um, if it feels that uh, some of the, the longer-term issues, such as um, attempting to change its, its economy, are going to be threatened. All right. Eunice, thank you. Eunice Yoon for us live in Beijing. So the question here is, if Beijing is so pessimistic about uh, getting a deal done, why is Wall Street still sitting at all-time highs? Guy. I think the simple answer, I think a lot of the guys on the desk would agree, is because they believe either correctly or incorrectly that, that somehow our Federal Reserve and central banks around the world have our back. I think the answer is that simplistic. By the way, I don't believe that. I think that's what's going on. Now, if you told me last night these headlines would come out and you said, where's the S&P going to close today? I would have been down at least 30 handles, if not more than that. And here we are, the S&Ps unchanged. It's remarkable to me the resiliency of this market. I've said it for a long time correctly that I don't think there is a U.S.-China deal. What I've gotten incorrect is the fact that the market doesn't seem to care. I thought for sure at a certain point the market would be negative on the back of market this. market doesn't seem to care, to Guy's point. But it's about positioning. So people have to get long going into year end. They've avoided the market. That hasn't been the trade. Now, right now, what could stop it? The market. It's not trade. It's the Fed telling you they're soft. They're easy. And they're not raising. They don't have to cut. They just don't have to raise. Well, I, I do think that you're right. I mean, I think the Fed is still the, the largest player in the markets right now. But I think what the markets have done in the last three weeks to month, for whatever reasons, maybe it's a slow stabilization or recovery in global PMIs. Maybe this is a labor market that gave you a great payroll number just when people are questioning. But if you listen to Goldman this morning out there basically saying the economy is going to be better than people thought, J.P. Morgan, Marco Kalanovich comes on the show and talks to us about how they actually see 3Q as an EPS trough and that you're starting to see real acceleration. So that delta of growth, even if it's off of a nothing base is enough for a market with Steve's under, uh, you know, people under positioned uh, with a Fed that says we're not, you know, we may not be cutting rates anytime soon, but we're certainly not going to hike. That's a great recipe. And by the way, market's gone up about as steep as it has during any period in the Trump presidency as supposed or whatever's happening in Washington is happening. Um, the market doesn't care about that right and now. And Tim, I think to that point, this move towards global cyclicality began in August when the trade stuff was at its worst, right? When it looked like there would be no deal. So I'm not convinced of bad headline overnight does a lot to derail the stocks that are most impacted by this. Look at how the China-sensitive stocks acted today. AMAT, Apple, Deer, Macau Gaming, they were leadership stocks today. So the market was clearly focused on something else, whether it's Fed odds of a hike next year, those have actually gone up, whether it's PBOC, whether it's China, PMI is starting to bottom here. We've seen it in Hong Kong. We've seen it with German DAX as well. Very export-driven market. PMI is probably putting in a trough there. So I think this is about 
not whether things are good or bad, but are they getting better or are they getting worse? And I think the action of the stock says global growth might be getting better here. But when we talk about global PMI is starting to show signs of an inflection point, right? And so people are getting more positive about stocks around the world. Isn't that also uh, predicated on this notion that the trade war tensions are easing or getting better? I mean, because if they don't, then we have to ratchet down our expectations for growth around the world, not just here in the United States. I I think that's right. So I I think trade is is certainly uh, very important. If I read Goldman's note correctly today, they're basically was on the assumption that there's no incremental tariffs higher from here. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're saying we can even go sideways in where the status quo is, and they think, okay, um, there is some presumption out there that... uh, there won't be a rollback, but if we hold ground here and don't get worse, we're going to be okay. And Tim, I might add to that, when you look around the world, the areas that are most China-sensitive are already down 40% from where they were in late 17, right? So you've priced in a lot of bad news, mm-hmm. particularly in Germany, particularly in Hong Kong, particularly with Macau. So, again, it's a question of whether things are getting better or worse, and status quo is not worse. Yeah, I think that there's also a giant poker game going on here. I think the Chinese, yeah. by lowering rates, I think they're gearing up for we're not going to make a deal. That's the way I interpret it. And then they're saying to themselves, is President Trump really going to pull the trigger on tariffs on two 15th. weeks before Christmas. Christmas, right? Will he make that bet and potentially well, do what do, you think? what do you think? I think he would pull, I think he would pull the trigger. I absolutely yeah. think he would pull the trigger because there's enough time until the November election. So in his mind, he will take the month of pain to make a point to draw the line in the sand. So I happen to think he would and pull he like, the trigger. And he likes to play with the S&P points. He feels like he's got a bunch of them. But I don't buy into that, that the Chinese are waiting for another Democrat to take the Oval Office. They're worse than Trump. They're playing the game that President Trump is going to start getting a little bit desperate before the election. Exactly. That he's going to want to secure a win by securing a deal. As long as the market, I hear that. It's not necessarily that they would rather. not another another person. I I, I hear that, but the market keeps going up to all of our point. I think that it's more, it's about the Fed and it's about trade. And right now, it's about easy money and both countries are printing. All right. Well, our next guest believes trade tensions could spark the next ugly sell-off. Julian Emanuel, the chief equity and derivative strategist at BTIG, is on pullback watch. Julian, welcome as always. Great to be here. Um, so you think something's going to happen with this talks and we're going to see a pullback? Well, so it, it, we go to this December 15th tariff yeah. uh, increment. If there is a thought, and we're thinking that this game of poker might be such that the market will believe incrementally more that those tariffs are going to go on on December 15th, we're overbought enough to cause a pullback there, okay? From our point of view, uh, as a long-term investor, you don't really want to, it's noise, you don't really want to play it. If you have profits that you feel you need to lock in before year-end, uh, you know, index option protection is very cheap. But bigger picture, we think that if you think about next year, economic consensus growth is 1.7%. That's not going to play well to the base. The president needs to create upside risk to that number. There aren't that many ways of doing it at this point, you know, despite the fact that uh, there was a very cordial meeting today with Chairman Powell, the Fed's on hold here in, in our view. And so it really comes back to getting something done with China. I don't know if you can have a meeting that's cordial after you call the guy a bonehead, but that's, that's <laughs> another story here. Um, Julian, <laughs> I mean, when, it's the time of year where, where strategists like yourself put together 2020 forecasts. And so when you're thinking about 2020 and year-end targets, are you thinking about the political factor? Are you thinking about how badly does Trump want to win and so therefore will secure a trade deal? 
just in the nick of time or sometime during 2020, and that lifts the markets higher? Uh, that's certainly a large part of it. So in our work, we look at presidential election years, and what we find is actually quite counterintuitive. They tend to be less volatile than other years. There are lots of tails, but if you think about it, it could be the market hesitating on taking action, either bullish or bearish, but that lower volatility tends to come more in the first half of the year, which to us could mean that as people see that the Fed is done, and that the economic indicators globally are starting to bottom, you could be uh, ha- see a move out of bonds into stocks. And for us, that tends to, you know, we're looking for that. We've had 10 years worth of bull market without enthusiasm. And our, on our year-end estimate of 179 for 2020, a median multiple over the last 30 years gets you to 3450. Where does the 10-year yield, where's the non-sweet spot for the 10-year yield? You can make an argument that we've been in it now for six months. Is it north of two and a quarter percent? Is it, is it somewhere below 145? I mean, wh- where do you think things get sort of pear-shaped in terms of bond yields? Well, at this point, the market, is, the psychology has changed. The yield curve is steep and you've come off of zero. Um, if you start heading back down below 150 in the 10-year yield, the stock market's going to run into trouble. Conversely, we think there's a lot of upside to how much the the 10-year yield can go before we run into trouble. Are we going to go to 3% like uh, last year and the year before? Not likely. Two and a half is is sort of where there's probably going to be a little bit more uh, discomfort. By the way, just quickly, how big of a pullback if we get those December 15th tariffs? you could chat, test the 200-day moving average at 2,900. Our base case is, is you pull back to where our year-end price target is, 3,000. Okay. Julian, great to see you. Thank you. Julian Emanuel of BTIG. Tim? The most interesting thing, I, I think, for, for folks expecting the market to, if we get Julian's scenario where, where deck 15 doesn't bring in new, new tariffs and you're generally bullish and you're saying next year is, is kind of your sideways lower vol first half, uh, I think, you know, Chris talks about global markets. And I would, I would just add what's going on in the resources trade. Are we, we, we've been seeing kind of a bottoming in crude. I think the most interesting trade is really not just energy, but, but, but steel companies, real industrial companies. Uh, and then that rest of the world trade that I think has been such a big underperformer, except for the fact that Germany's now outperformed the S&P in local currency terms. So if you think that the dollar is going to give some ground, um, this would be a very powerful trade in that part of the, the world. I, I think it was notable. Dollar was down today, yeah. right? And I, I get the idea that the market stretched here. I get the idea that the market's overbought. But let's not get too cute. These have been ranges for two years, and stocks just broke out around the world. So I think the mistake here is overplaying our hand. If you get any hint of weakness, you have to buy it. I didn't hear Julian mention recession. I heard him say earnings growth in 2020, and I heard him say 34.50 of the S&P. Sounds pretty bullish to me. All right, coming up, Snap Pops says the company's CEO takes new aim at the competition. We'll bring you his comments straight ahead. Plus, we are moments away from an exclusive interview with President Trump's former National Economic Advisor, Gary Cohn. We'll hear all about his latest blockchain venture and also get his take on the economy heading into 2020. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. 
I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Snapshare is surging more than 5% today as CEO Evan Spiegel took aim at one of the company's biggest competitors. Here's what he had to say in an exclusive interview with CNBC's Julia Borston earlier today. I think there are some things that they've done in the past, um, you know, that they could be perceived to be anti-competitive. Things like, you know, limiting uh, the the reach of other, um, you know, services on their platform, preventing people from using a snap code in their profile or something like that. And and I think, you know, services that have, you know, reach as broad as, as Facebook are held to a different standard, obviously. So uh, I think, you know, we'll sort of see what happens uh, over time. Ross, are you on this name? I do. I bought it the day of earnings, so I took some pain. I bought it slightly over $14, a couple pennies over $14. I took some pain to the downside. Now it's trading higher. I think uh, Evan has threaded the needle, though, on political ads, where mm-hmm. Twitter got a little too hot, Facebook a little too cold. Mean and- by banning and then... Fact, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have, you have uh, Snapchat is going to fact check. So I think right. that's what the market wanted to hear. I think the market wants to hear ad growth growing. That's what has been happening. Revenue growth, that has been happening. So I, he's coming out with new products. So I think it's going to shoot for that $17 IPO price. I, 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 go, I, go I, I, thought, I thought that it was admirable that he said that he wanted to keep political ads on Snap because a, a lot of people are first time voters. Right. I think that's very important yep. as well. But when I heard that they were going to fact check, the first thing I thought of was <laughs> expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and costs are going to go up because of that. But, but again, it's about you know, establishing or reestablishing or perpetuating credibility. And, and I think for a company that just showed profitability for the first time, I mean, maybe they're in a better position to do that. Look, three straight quarters of DAU growth, three straight quarters of revenue growth, and they're finally you know, profitable. Uh, I'm not jumping crazy on the bandwagon, but I do think that the trend in this company for one that we were waiting for this moment is this the inflection point there are some there's certainly some people out there that think so yeah. chris stock's gone five to 14 this year all right what's already in the price here i mean yeah. would we rather buy something like a facebook which has spent the last 12 months in a range oh maybe that's the better that's a would you rather that is a would you rather i like how he didn't right right but it was soft-spoken very soft-spoken yeah it was a subtle would you rather i'll play the game i would i would she's asking now what are tim's favorite four letters when we talk about companies like this Arpu. Uh-huh. Arpu. Arpu is up 25 percent year over year i mean you look at the metrics Active users up 9.5% year-over-year. Margins up, I think, 27% year-over-year. You have some pretty staggering growth. So although the stock has rallied a lot, J.P. Morgan upgraded, I think, on October 23rd with a $20 price target. I don't think that's unreasonable. I think it can go higher from here. All right. For more uh, from our exclusive interview with Snap CEO Evan Spiegel, head on over to CNBC.com. Here's what else is coming up on Fast. Former White House National Economic Advisor Gary Cohn has a new blockchain project. We find out what it's all about 
and get his take on the state of the 2020 election. Plus, Ford taking on Tesla with its new electric SUV. But will it be enough to stop Tesla's recent run? Or will short bets on Elon Musk start to pay off again? All that and more when Fast Money returns. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Shehi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. President Trump's former top economic advisor, Gary Cohn, making a very big bet on blockchain. Let's get to Seema Modi live at the Credit Suisse Blockchain and Digital Asset Symposium in New York City with more Seema. Hi, Melissa. Thank you. And yes, joined by Gary Cohn, as well as Hector Hoyos, the CEO of Hoyos Integrity, a company that's trying to marry cybersecurity and blockchain, a company that, Gary, you are invested in. So let's start there. Following your high-profile departure uh, from the White House, I'm sure there are a number of companies that wanted you as an advisor and an investor. Why Hoyos? Well, I think we should have Hector talk about the phone and what we've been able to do. But I'll start with saying this. You know, when I was in the private sector, we always worried about secure data, secure communications, and securing our clients' data. When I went to, to the public sector, it's the same issue. We had to deal with secure data, securing data, secure communications. What I found out is that the public sector didn't have a better solution than the private sector. When I left the White House, one of the challenges that I set out to see if I could be part of the solution was in finding a solution for secure data, secure telephony, and secure communication. I just happened to luckily find, find Hector, who was working on the problem, and Hector has created a secure phone, and we've been working on that for the last two years. Hector, there has been renewed concern about cybersecurity hacks as well as data privacy. Your goal is to create the world's most uh, smartest and secure phone. Seems like a great idea at a time when we're really concerned about security, but how exactly are you doing it? So many companies attempted to do that in the last few years, and the problem was that the operating system they were using wasn't secure. Android is not secure. The iOS operating system is not secure. So what we did is we took the operating system from a company in California called Green Hill Software that for 20 years has been the operating system running the nuclear bomber wing of the United States, the B-1, the B-2, B-52, the f 35 all of our nuclear missile and guidance, all of our nuclear systems run on integrity. So we, do, we took the integrity operating system, put it inside a brand new phone that we designed from the, most of the folks that used to work for Motorola Mobility that work for us now. Um, and now that means that if, with this phone, if you have a phone and I have a phone and you call me, that call automatically is secure. There is no, nobody can intercept that call or the text or the email. Now, if I have an iPhone and you call me with this phone, yeah. you can still make that call, but that call will not be secure. Now, integrity in 20 years of being op- in operation has never had a single hack of vulnerability because that's how our nuclear weapons arsenal has been protected. And that is the type of capability that we have 
uh, created yeah. and brought to market. Gary, you mentioned this at the top, but what was it about your experience at the White House that sparked your interest in blockchain and security? And are you going to pitch this phone to President Trump? Well, look, I've been involved with security and secure data my whole life and, and making sure you understand <clears throat> what you have, who you have it, who you're protecting it from, whether you're involved with the merger transaction, you've got material non-public data, who gets to see it in the organization, who does it, you move to the White House, you've got a whole, little, a whole different level of security concern. So it was one of these areas where I always thought there was a better solution, and when I got to the government, there really wasn't a better solution, and I saw what we had to do. We went to foreign countries with phones, the way we had to change phones out, and what the, what the security administrations did with the phones, and how they couldn't make them any more secure than the, the private sector could. So I, I said to myself, there has to be a better solution for this long time, and that's how I ended up getting involved with, it, with Hector. You know, and then the unique part about it is we also found out that with inside our secure environment, we have a wallet, which we really weren't planning on developing a wallet, but we ended up with a very secure wallet, secure enough that Hector and his team were able to secure over, uh, they were able to secure a million dollars of insurance per wallet per user. Um, which is pretty impressive, if you think about that. Yeah, certainly a growing area, digital payments. Let me send it back to Melissa Lee in studio. Yeah, Gary, hey, great to have you on the show. I, I have a question for you. I mean, you've been out of the White House for some time, so you've been unfettered, so to speak. So I wanted to ask you about the tax cuts and, and what you make of the success of the tax cuts and whether or not you think they were, in fact, successful. Uh, FedEx got some blowback in the New York Times for saving a lot of money because of the corporate tax rate going down. They paid zero taxes, according to the New York Times, but didn't spend it on capital expenditures. How would you measure the success of the corporate tax cuts? So, Melissa, let, let, me, let me leave FedEx and the New York Times and everyone out of this discussion and talk, talks about the tax cuts in its entirety. So if you look at tax collections, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, believe it or not, overall tax receipts went up each of those years. Each of those years, we had higher and higher tax receipts. Yes, corporate tax collection went down by a small bit of overall revenue, but personal income tax went up. That's exactly what we would have modeled. We would have modeled that corporate taxes would have went down with the rate going down substantially, and that personal income tax would have gone up because we modeled there to be growth in the economy, and we saw that. We saw that by the unemployment rate coming down, and we saw that by wage growth. So exactly what we thought was going to happen when we projected the tax cuts is happening, and we see that. And, and so I'm very pleased with what's happening with the tax cuts right now and what they're doing for the economy. Look, that is all happening in spite of the fact that we have tariffs on steel and aluminum and the other major inputs that you would need if you were going to go out and do a big CapEx expansion and the fact that our trade is down substantially with China. Those two things really do impact the amount of capital expenditure you have. And then put on top of that, the newest ingredient is what is the geopolitical climate going to look like going forward? There are some candidates right now that are running with an agenda with an awful lot of government reform in the corporate world. And if you were thinking of doing a 10, 20, 30, 40 billion dollar CapEx expansion in the United States right now, I'm not sure you would be acting as a good fiduciary as a board member to want to go do that capital expansion right now until you understood what the cost of that was going to be in terms of employees, in terms of health care costs, in terms of profitability costs, in terms of surtax costs, in terms of understanding all of the different plans and what may come into legislation or what won't come into legislation. On that political note, Gary, we've had a lot of major investors 
uh, make predictions as to how much the market would go down under Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. Care to venture a guess? I mean, Paul Tudor Jones is in there, Lee Cooperman in there, down 20 percent, down 25 percent. What do you think? Look, it's, it's not my job. I'm, I'm not an equity strategist. I don't run equity money for a living. Um, it, it, it's not what I do for a living. Right now, I'm, I'm spending my time on figuring out how to solve the hackability of digital communications, and that's a lot more fun. Well, that's, that's a good answer, Gary. <laughs> but in terms, of, in terms of running a business and, and seeing what the business environment might be, more conducive to business under a Warren or Bernie Sanders presidency or another Trump presidency? Well, you know the answer. <laughs> the, the, a Trump presidency is obviously more, more conducive to business. You know, the, under the Trump presidency, and you've heard me talk about this, we've made the U.S. much more competitive on a corporate tax standpoint. You know, our, our, our tax rate is still very competitive. We're not the lowest in the world. In fact, India just cut their corporate tax rate to 15%. You look at what we've done in the regulatory standards in the United States, we've made our regulations smart. We haven't just deregulated to say we've deregulated. We've deregulated to make ourselves competitive and smart. We're still a highly regulated environment here in the United States. And the business community is thriving because of that. And you see that in the jobs data, in the jobs number, in the unemployment report. We see wage growth over 3%. We see unemployment around you know, 50-year lows. Those are good numbers. Those are telling you that, the corporate Amer- that corporate America is investing in the U.S. economy. But some will argue that the tariffs uh, and the uncertainty of the tariffs are basically undoing all of that good that President Trump has done for businesses. Would you agree uh, look, with that? I, you, know where I, you, you know that I'm not in favor of tariffs. I, I understand, and I think most of you understand, that our economy is 80% service-driven. That's both on the GDP side as well as the job side. So to the extent that we can make imports more affordable or cheaper in the United States, it means that U.S. consumers will have more money to spend on domestically produced services. And that's good for our economy. So I'm not in favor of tariffs. I believe that the tariffs are hurting the corporate environment and they are hurting disposable income. And as you know and I know, disposable income has been what's driving the U.S. economy. Gary, you read people as well as anybody I've ever met. You were next to the president for quite some time. In your opinion, President Trump moved the tariffs from August until December 15th. If there's no deal, will he blink, or do you think he will go through with the tariffs on the 15th of December? Hey, Guy. Um, look, I, I think if there's no deal, he'll go through with them on December 15th. I, I, I think he's given himself time. He's got them through the other side of the holiday season. Um, and December 15th is a long time from now in terms of terrorist negotiations. There's a lot of other things that have to happen in the United States, including debt ceiling, continued resolution. I think that he thinks that that's a forcing function, and if he keeps blinking, you know, he loses credibility in the Chinese eyes. All right, Gary. Do you think he'll go forward, though, with a phase one deal? Oh, go ahead, Melissa. Go ahead, Seema. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to follow up there. Do you think that the president will follow through with a phase one deal that uh, satisfies the Chinese but doesn't really address some of the core issues with the Chinese practices like IP theft? Look, I, I hope the president follows through with the, with the phase one deal. 
It's important for our farmers. Our farmers deserve to be growing crops. Our farmers deserve to be exporting. It's important for our U.S. economy. We should not be in this position right now. A phase one deal is important to our U.S. economy. So at a minimum, we should go through with that. We'll see if we get there. Gary Cohen and Hector Oyos, thank you for joining us today. Thank Melissa, you. Thank you. I'll send it back to you in studio. All right. Thanks, Seema. Thanks, Gary and Victor. Um, and don't uh, forget another big interview with Goldman Sachs Senior Chairman Lloyd Blankfein on Halftime Report tomorrow at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. What do you make of uh, Mr. Cohen's comments? Well, I, I agree getting through phase one. I'm not sure we're going to you know, really define phase one as being a victory or not. It, it sounds like there are folks within the White House that truly believe that we're not giving in, uh, we're giving in too much and we're not digging in enough. But um, as it relates to, to tax policy and, you know, look, we, have a, we have a deficit that's $4 trillion. Um, and, and that's something that uh, historically, especially for this type of an administration, I do mean a fiscally conscious Republican administration, this, this would have been unheard of. Um, so I, I think the, the outlook for getting through this period, uh, it sounds though that you know, the, the, the Goldman line, and I don't mean his line, I mean what we talked about earlier today, is that the economy is relative to this trade war starting to get some reacceleration. And if you get that, this service-based economy is in good shape. Yeah, I brought up uh, the tariffs and whether or not they're undoing the good of the tax cuts because it was an op-ed in Fortune today. Uh, basically, the first year and a half, two years of the Trump presidency was very pro-business. And then with every single tariff that has gone into effect that has basically worn away all that good that was done for businesses. I, I actually look at it the, the opposite. I think he did the tax cuts for the corporations to allow them to prepare for, for trade the war. environment in the trade war. So I, I think that's the key. And, and by the way, the reason why we had a run of the market was deregulation right. and tax cuts. Yeah. That's it. So what, what, what's interesting, a view I have is also that the tax cuts basically threw, threw fire on an economy that was starting to reaccelerate and actually brought the Fed in uh, to have to play a bigger role than we wanted the Fed to play, which caused oh, a so lot of the Fed missteps. And in fact, the Fed, huh. which is certainly the administration has been very critical of, um, is a function of really what they did. Um, because I'm not sure we needed the, the corporate tax cuts to stimulate the economy. Maybe they structurally needed to happen, but at that time, the economy was giving you what you wanted. I think what's notable, though, the industrial economy, the stocks that have gotten the benefit of the tax cut, are just beginning to turn up here. Look at the Parker Hannafins, the Deers, even the Boeing. So the idea that a U.S. tax steel cut... U.S. Steel down 65%. Right. You so, had that recession. You know. right? So the idea that this is a one-time thing, I think, is a mistake. There's animal spirits here that have been unleashed, and the industrial stocks are finally starting to reflect that. All right. Coming up, Ford setting up for a big electric vehicle battle with Tesla. We'll tell you how to trade the red-hot EV space. Plus, teen retailers no longer too cool for school. We'll tell you what the latest retail rec means for this group. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Ford Motors officially breaking into the electric vehicle space with its new Mustang Mach-E. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with all the details. Hey, Phil. Hi, Melissa. A lot of chatter today, and pardon the pun for me saying this, but the chatter is whether or not the Mustang Mach-E has the horses to take on Tesla and win. Here's what you need to keep in mind when you look at the Mach-E. First of all, the range when fully charged, up to 300 miles. A 10-minute quick charge, you'll get 47 miles. The base price is expected to be somewhere around $44,000 when it comes to market late next year. And they know that there's a lot of competition coming. That's why Ford needs the Mach-E to be successful. By 2025, more than 100 electric vehicles are expected to be on sale here in the United States, more than 350 in China. And what's coming next year that the folks at Ford are going to be paying attention to? 
the Tesla Model Y. Now, the Model Y is expected to come out late next year, around the same time as the Mach-E, and they're going to be going after the same market, Melissa. They're going after the person who wants a crossover or small SUV in that $35,000 to $60,000 price range. That's where Ford believes that it can beat Tesla at its own game. The race between electric vehicles, that is really going to heat up late next year. Guys, back to you. The secret ingredient to all of this, Phil, though, is that Ford is making these cars in Mexico, so the price will be cheaper, right? And so, right. therefore, it's more competitive with Tesla. Well, yeah, and we talked with uh, Jim Hackett last night, the CEO of Ford, and he said that's the way we make this vehicle profitable. It plan they plan on it being profitable after you strip out the cost because, in part, it's going to be built in Mexico. And we asked him, are you worried that the president will say, oh, why are you building down there? You should be building here in the U.S. He says, look, we're going to build a lot of electric vehicles here in the U.S. We think the Trump administration understands our position that we have to use all of our facilities, not just those in the U.S. Right. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau in uh, California for us. Is this going to make Ford more competitive? I mean, their game plan is to electrify their iconic vehicles. So after this... The F-150, for instance, no, I get electrified. That. But, uh, you know, the other side of that coin is the Mustang brand is iconic. And the fact that they're using this to me, I don't know. I, I, it's, I'm sure they had many meetings about this. They had a lot of focus groups. I happen to think it's a mistake. Good for Ford, though. If they thought they were going to bounce in the stock, didn't happen today. And quite frankly, it hasn't happened for the last eight years. So although they may be more competitive, you know, I, they've been behind the eight ball seemingly now for the last decade. I don't know what makes the stock go higher. The car might be fantastic. I don't think the stock is. What's wrong with the stock? I think it's remarkable. You've had a rally in global autos the last couple months with Volkswagen and BMW and Toyota yeah. and Honda. And Massive. these can't participate. Yeah. Ford doesn't work. GM doesn't work. So it's clearly saying there's still something wrong with this picture. I think if you're going to play autos, buy Toyota. Don't buy Ford. When, it, when you look at the vehicle, it's obviously it's a copycat of Tesla's vehicle. There's nothing that's stunning that says, okay, I need to have that over a Tesla vehicle. Tesla still made it cool. You don't think it looks like a Mustang? That the no, you don't think great. the Mustang looks like a Mustang? Yeah, it looks, it, it like looks cool. Blue. No, I, nice. I think the car looks cool. the car looks nice, but Not the Model one. X is what everyone's chasing. This is the price point of the Model 3, but I still think Tesla, Ford should have been way ahead of this, and I feel like they're, they're way behind, even the GM. All right, speaking of electric vehicles, mm. Tesla has been on a recent tear. And if you're a loyal viewer of the show, you know that Tim Seymour has been short the stock. So how exactly is he navigating this trade? Time to go to trade school classes and sessions. So, Tim, why don't you break it down for us? Yeah, so first, I just want to talk a little bit about how someone should think about any short. And, and, but then specifically how I've been thinking about Tesla. I mean, ultimately, you have a case here where timing is essential. And, and as we're going to get into this, um, I'm going to show you where on a chart I thought Tesla, which if you look at a five-year chart, really didn't do much and also had this real ascent period. But it wasn't until really January, February of 2019 that you started to have an opportunity. We'll get into that. Remember, size your position. This is also really very important. So uh, how am I going to uh, put this short on? For many people, a short is more of a hedge than it is a tactical short. A tactical short, folks, uh, to me, should be a 2 to 3% position, maybe a 4% position if it's very high conviction. If it's a hedge, it's a totally different ballgame. And then finally, define your risk. So uh, to me, it's very important to understand how I'm getting my short exposure. And in the case of Tesla, to me, uh, a majority of this position was put on through puts where I thought I could be much more tactical. But more importantly, define my risk for a stock that I actually think really is a very difficult one to bet based 
based upon fundamentals. And frankly, we've seen the irrationality of the stock on the way up and the way down. What I simply just want to show you with this five-year chart is, you know, you had a dynamic here where clearly, for the most part, you had this move. Um, I've been, look, I... You've been watching this show. I've been negative on Tesla for a long time. Uh, it didn't mean I necessarily felt the need to go get into the market and, and actually short it. I probably just told you that I thought the valuation was awful. I didn't understand why people weren't talking about competition like Ford and that you had a dynamic where ultimately you were going to get, uh, I think, some re-rating in the shares. So finally, here's where I decided to get involved in the, in the, in the trade and where I felt it was Time to actually be both tactical and take a thesis. Um, the thesis that I had was really that we are starting to see uh, destruction, uh, some fallout, some flaws uh, in the balance sheet. And as you remember, somewhere around here when we got Q4 earnings of 2018 is when the stock really started to come under some pressure. For me, I started somewhere around March putting some puts on. Uh, and I took a small short position in the cash and ultimately, by March, as we got into April, you started to see an acceleration of that. As we got into first quarter earnings, you got a dynamic where people were really able to get in this. So with, with puts, I think you have to trade them very aggressively. Not only do you define your risk, but you actually have to trade monthly puts and trade them actively. As we got into April and May, it was a case where... Uh, and at 175, I thought Tesla was a company that was actually maybe going to wake up one day and tell you they were restructuring. And right around here, I bought 175 puts and, and, and rolled them down to uh, 125 as they got in the money. Ultimately, you have a case here where I think it was a company that somewhere around here um, I thought maybe was going to break and I wanted to be aggressive. The cash short is something that I still hold, but if you look at the average position, it ultimately gets to a place where you've got you know, really a, a, a 10 to 15 percent loss in the underlying. Um, but that's a function of mostly playing it tactically through puts and then having a cash short. When I look at Tesla and I look at this run for the last three months, ultimately, where do I want to be? Well, 370 is the level that I think I have to be watching and where I would probably be blowing out this short. But I don't think we're going to get through 370 until we hear from the company on Q3 and Q2. Where's profitability? Uh, where's the company actually in terms of the balance sheet? That last quarter let's showed us a lot of opportunity. But at 370, that's where I think it's important to say cash position, which is about one-third of the overall, is time to go. So I think it's very important, Tim, to underscore the point that you can be short this stock, and depending on how you do it, just because the stock is up 40% in the past month or so, that doesn't mean that's how much you're down on this trade. Yeah. So, so uh, as I said, uh, I was pushing the stock somewhere around 185, 200 when I thought I had momentum behind me and I was pushing it through puts that I was rolling down and trading pretty actively. Uh, the cash position that I've held is one that, uh, to me, also uh, allowed me reinforcement of my underlying. But, yeah, I think if you look at my average position, I'm probably around 310, 315 overall in my exposure in the stock, cash and puts. And I think at 375, if we get different news from the company, I don't need to stick around and wait to this. I still think it's uh, got enormous fundamental issues, but I do think it's a case where you don't need to stay around and wait for that. Higher or lower? Well, where, does, where does Tesla go from here? I've thought lower as well. I'm sort of in Tim's camp. Jeffrey's just yeah. raised a price target to 400. I think your catalyst could come into form in November 21st. They're going to roll out this cyber uh, truck. Cyber truck. Can't wait for that. That's, I mean, truck. so we'll see. I mean, that's the level that we saw. 375-ish was the level we saw in June of 2017. I'm with Tim. Obviously, the cash flow position has improved, which is why the stock has gone up $100 in a month and a half, two months. But I think it's over its skis. Just quickly. Higher. And I think there's two Higher rules the I would add to Tim's rule. Don't marry shorts and watch the debt. And the debt in Tesla has improved here. Coming up, one group of retailers falling out of fashion with Wall Street today. Which names are not so hip? 
And is it time to buy this dip? Plus, chip stocks on a tear this year in the options market. Betting one is about to break out to fresh highs. Don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Teen retailers falling hard today ahead of earnings and as we head into Black Friday. So are these retailers forecasting more pain to come? Look at those declines, Guy. Those are all the places that you That like I shot. Yeah. I was actually at all three this weekend, as it turns out. I'm sure you were. At the Short Hills Mall. No, I mean, I like when I walk in, I bring down the overall age, you know, when they see it. No, I'm kidding. Obviously kidding. <laughs> Urban Outfitters is going from 20 to 30. So if you're looking for a short-covering rally, I think you've seen it already. I mean, these stocks don't trade at big valuations, but they shouldn't trade at big valuations. So I think people that have enjoyed the move, especially in URBN, are getting out ahead of earnings. I think that's the right thing to do. This, yep. whole, this whole group is usually the high beta names for retail. So yep. you, you wind up seeing these react up and down sooner than you see the overall group. But Urban actually has the, the nicest chart. Uh, I'll refer to you on yep. this, but it's got the nicest chart out of the three names or the four names? It's the one name of the bunch where you could say, okay, this is viable weakness. But what's remarkable is for as bad as these are, Lulu's still great. Nike's still right. great. So mm-hmm. to call these team retailers, why is Lulu not a team retailer? Why is Nike not one? I think those are better charts. Urban's the best of this bunch, but AEO's are short. Abercrombie's are short. Those aren't good pictures. You went shopping this weekend, Tim. Yeah, I, heard, I, 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 did, I heard you bought I yourself did, a nice new shirt. I did, did sneak it? up to the mall. And, and I tell you what, you have trouble spending money in some of these stores. But what I would say with because some of these Because the names, merchandise is so ugly? Because it's or? so heavily discounted. Oh, and, yeah. and that is an issue. And when you look at the gross margins in a number of these names, I think they're under pressure. I agree with Chris. That I'd shirt looks like in a sale item. It was easy there. <laughs> I won't even want you to nice laugh track. actually a nice shirt. Thank you. Thank Still you. ahead, this, this soaring semi-stock is up nearly 60% this year, and options traders are betting on an even bigger chip rip ahead. We'll break down the action. Plus, take a look at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Airbnb mm. ahead of the company's widely anticipated market debut. That full interview coming up at the top of the hour. We're live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. Much more Fast Money. Still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Big interview coming your way tomorrow. Qualcomm CEO will be live ahead of the company's analyst day. The options market's betting on big things heading into tomorrow. Mike Ho's breaking down the details from San Francisco. Hey, Mike. Hi there. So we saw calls outpaced puts by about four to one. And while weekly call options were the most active, I was actually looking at the February 92 and a half calls. Over 2,200 of those traded for about $5. So buyers of those calls are betting that Qualcomm could see some new all-time highs within the course of the next couple of months. And if you take a look at the price of options, the implied volatility, that's when you can see whether events like the one that we're getting tomorrow are going to lead to more volatility for the stock. We can see it's substantially higher. So that's a good thing for people to keep an eye out for if you're looking at catalysts other than just earnings. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe in San Francisco. For more options action, tune into the full show this Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Trade time. Tim. Home Depot out with earnings tomorrow. Lowe's is the play for now. Chris Verone. Long Facebook, 197 going to 220. Steve. Bausch Health, BHC going higher. Keith. We talked about Snap, if you recall, at the beginning of the I show there recently. And I do, I do believe there's still some upside in the Snap. All right. That does it for us. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 